Welcome to American Dreams. My guest today is Brian Smedley. He's the chief economist at Guggenheim Partners. Brian, welcome to today's show. Thanks, Alan. Great to be with you. So, Brian, for the listeners to start out, can you um, tell us about what your current role at Guggenheim involves? You bet. So I started at Guggenheim about seven years ago, and I came on board to lead a team called Macroeconomic and Investment Research. And, uh, and this team, in, in this role, I function as our chief economist as well. And we've got a team of eight economists and strategists. And together, our objective is to develop a cohesive view of the economic policy and market outlook. And so we work closely with our, our uh, investment teams. Um, I report to our global chief investment officer. And uh, we work closely with them to, to develop the house views. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, that, those views are implemented across our investment portfolios. So it's really, it's a pretty broad remit um, across the eight of us. We're looking at everything from, you know, the U.S. Treasury market to investment and investment grade and high yield bonds, uh, commercial real estate, equities, FX, commodities, and uh, pretty much everything in between. So what positions did you have previously that helped you prepare for this current role? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I, I came uh, to Guggenheim about seven years ago. And before that, um, I spent some time on the policy side and then worked on the sell side. So let me just, maybe just, why don't I start with, um, you know, uh, going back to, to college. Um, I, uh, I studied at uh, Utah State. I, I was an economics and a finance major. Uh, went to graduate school in Washington, D.C. At, uh, at, at GW. And, uh, and when I finished my program there, um, I, mean, I, had, I had some limited work experience. I uh, had done some internships in D.C. At the, at the White House for the President's Council of Economic Advisors uh, at the U.S. Treasury Department. But um, that was, I was really looking to take my, my first full-time job. And I ended up getting a position uh, at the New York Fed. Um, and so I started there in the Emerging Markets and International Affairs Group uh, as an economist covering Latin America. And then uh, after a couple of years, um, you know, things really heated up in the U.S. with um, the you know, emergence of the financial crisis, uh, the failure of Bear Stearns in March of 2008. So shortly after that time, I, uh, uh, I, I had an opportunity to move to the open markets desk, the markets group. And that was run by Bill Dudley at the time. Um, and uh, so in that role, I was covering foreign exchange markets, commodity markets, uh, and then did some work um, sort of as a liaison to the buy side. So part of that effort was during the financial crisis to, um, to ensure that the Fed was reaching out to and getting feedback from the investor community globally to help make better policy decisions and be more informed on market developments. Um, so all told, I spent about four and a half years at the Fed. Uh, and then um, I left that role to go to Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, in 2010, where I worked for five years as a U.S. rates strategist. So my focus there was, you know, really building on my time at the Fed. But uh, my focus there was on the short end of the yield curve. So we covered, my group covered treasuries, uh, interest rate derivatives like swaps and futures. Uh, I was very focused also on money markets. Um, and this is all in the post-financial crisis period, of course. So a lot of the Volcker, uh, the, well, the Volcker rule and a lot of the um, Basel framework and Dodd-Frank reforms to the banking system affected the money markets and the treasury market. So I did a lot of work on that in addition to, of course, you know, watching the Fed closely. And so after five years of that, um, you know, 
I've always been a big picture guy. Um, I've always been kind of in search of a new learning curve. And so um, when the opportunity came up for me to move to the buy side and, and work at an investment firm like Guggenheim, uh, it, was a, it was a fantastic opportunity for me to pull together a lot of the things that I was interested in and try to, again, try to complete the whole puzzle. Um, and, uh, and that's been a lot of fun. So who are the key people who helped you get to where you are today? Yeah, there's so many people um, who've, who've influenced me and who've, who've played important roles in determining my path, really, that I'm so grateful for. I would start with my mom and dad. Uh, uh, I grew up in, in the state of Utah and had two amazing parents, um, three older sisters and one younger brother. My parents were always super supportive of me and our family. Uh, and encouraged us to get a good education, to work hard, and really helped us believe that the sky was the limit. Um, and so it started with that uh, encouragement from my mom and dad. There was a time when I was in high school. Um, I graduated in 1998. I remember my dad's made kind of a, you know, I was sitting down with my dad and he made a comment to me. He had just had a meeting with his financial advisor. And he said to me, you know, Brian, you should really think about a career in, as a financial advisor in finance, because the guy who works for me, he only works four days a week and he drives a nice car. And, you know, that could be an interesting uh, thing for you. So that kind of got the wheels turning. Um, anyway, so my, my dad in that, in that moment, I went to college. I, I can think of another person, Madeline Timms, who was my uh, finance advisor. I, had a, a, I was a dual track economics and finance major. Um, but my finance advisor made it, you know, in a 30 minute conversation, made some recommendations to me that completely changed my life. And I think she was inspired. I'm so grateful for it. But she recommended that I go to graduate school in Washington, DC, which hadn't really entered my mind. Um, and so that opened up an entirely new career path for me. Um, I would say too, like in, in the workforce, my first boss, a guy named John Clark, uh, an economist at, at the New York Fed, there was a moment, again, in early 2008, I had been working for John for a couple of years, uh, covering Latin America. And they, the, the, the bank needed more resources in the markets group to cover uh, you know, financial crisis-related things, stir, stir, uh, staff the new lending facilities, cover market developments, and provide that intelligence to policymakers. And he, John came to me and said, you know, there's this opportunity to go do a rotation in the markets group for six months. Would you be interested? And uh, that, again, that was another moment, a conversation that unlocked doors for me that I never could have imagined. Um, one other person I'll mention is Haley Boski, who I work with at the Fed. Uh, she hired me onto her team at one point at the Fed, and then she subsequently left. And um, and it, you know, and uh, she played a key role in my decision to go to Bank of America, uh, uh, where she landed, and then you know, ultimately to transition to uh, to Guggenheim as well. Now, Brian, I understand you're also an accomplished musician. <laughs> Did you ever wish that you would have chosen a career down that? field of music? Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's right. I, I, um, I am an amateur musician. I, when I was a teenager, I picked up the guitar at the age of 13. Uh, there, was a, there was an old guitar my mom had bought for my dad for his birthday years before, and it was, it was sitting in storage in my closet. And I thought one day, you know, I should pick that up and, and start to fiddle with it. Um, and I came to really develop a passion for playing the guitar writing music, singing. Um, and so as I got toward, you know, graduation from high school, I actually thought, you know, this, 
this is my passion. This is what I want to do. And so I applied to college as a guitar major, auditioned, uh, and that was initially the way I thought I, I, I was going to go. Um, but this was also during, you know, the late 1990s. This was the, the heady days of the NASDAQ bubble. You know, the stock market was on fire. The internet was new in, in terms of opening up, um, uh, you know, online trading. And, uh, and so I opened up a, a, an online trading account. Um, in my first semester, I switched to a finance major uh, and I left, left guitar pretty quickly. Uh, and I had so much fun just trading stocks, trying to identify patterns intraday in the computer lab uh, at, at college. Um, but um, I would say looking back on it now, I, you know, I, I, think I, I think I made the right decision in terms of you know, developing a career path that's I think more stable. Uh, it's been very you know, um, uh, enjoyable and very lucrative for me. But the other thing too, that I've, I've, as I think about this, one of the challenges that I've had with music, as much as I love music and I love to play music and I enjoy sitting down with the guitar, one of the things I always struggled with is when I'm trying to compose a song, which I don't do much anymore, and, and I try to compose lyrics, I struggle with the fact that there's not a right answer, right? And so I'm, I'm a perfectionist too. And so I'm my biggest critic, you know, I'm coming up with a chord progression or lyrics or something. And it's easy for me to look at that and say, oh, somebody's already, somebody's, this other song already, you know, has already done that. Um, and so uh, what I love, I think about, uh, you know, economics and finance is the market ultimately will bear out the truth of your decisions, right? Good or bad. And, uh, and, and there is an objective function, which is to optimize risk adjusted returns. In the field of economics, it's about accurately forecasting the future and the implications. And so for me, it's a more comfortable place to be as somebody who's naturally inclined to be kind of a perfectionist, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, very happy here, but I do enjoy picking up the guitar now and then. So Brian, with, I'm going to switch topics. You're coming back to this economy with, uh, inflation at a 40 year high. What's your take? on this economy and, 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 and as a follow-up, how do we get here? Yeah, it, it is, it is extraordinary, Alan. Um, obviously this is a, a situation with inflation we haven't seen in 40 years and, and how we got here is very unique relative to that period in the 1970s. Um, I would say, look, part, uh, there, there are many factors on the supply side and on the demand cur uh, demand side, but I would say, you know, just a thought experiment for our listeners. If, if you took Econ 101, uh, basic economics understanding, think back to your supply and demand curves um, and the demand curve slopes down, the supply curve slopes up. What happened through the pandemic is that we shifted the demand curve out into the right and we shifted the supply curve in and to the left. So what happens in that context is the price level goes up, okay? And, and, and both curves, I think, have been in motion. So, you know, you, you could go back to, of course, um, the, the fact that we have several effective vaccines that were started to be rolled out in late 2020 had a huge impact in the recovery. But also, of course, we have very, very aggressive fiscal and monetary stimulus. Um, and part of the mistakes, that in, in hindsight, we did far too much on the fiscal and the monetary side. It wasn't that obvious at the time. And part of the reason is because Economists, you know, were looking back at the last 20 years of history, really 10 to 15 years in the United States, and even longer for uh, for Japan, and saying the cost of inflation being too low, of aggregate demand being too weak, 
are very high. It's hard. Japan has struggled for decades to get inflation up to 2%, and they've done huge fiscal stimulus, record monetary easing. And so, you know, um, in the initial stages of the pandemic, it was critical, the packages that were passed on a bipartisan basis. But in later 2020 and early 2021, I think that's when we overshot the mark, right as the, the vaccines were coming on board. And, um, and it, in the end, we dumped way too much stimulus on an economy that was already recovering. Uh, and that has really, um, um, look, I, I, I don't, you know, just, just to point specifically to, to the Fed where I worked, you know, many years ago, um, you know, Jay Powell said in October of 2020 out to Congress and to the world that the costs of doing too little were greater than the costs of doing too much, that they, we could handle a situation where we overstimulated. So we are now living in a world where we have to clean up. The Fed specifically has to clean up uh, the, the excessive demand impulse uh, that we're living through. Now, it's also important to talk again about the supply side. And um, the, there's, there's a bunch of things from global supply chains to the energy crisis in Europe brought on in large part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, to zero COVID policy in China, which is gumming up supply chains and logistics. But another really important supply problem is around the labor market. We have too few workers in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, most of the world, to meet the demand uh, for goods and services. And this, we've been on this track in the United States for more than two decades. Um, uh, it's been on, it, it's been a process over many many years that we've seen a deceleration in the growth rate of the working age population. We are we have an aging workforce. People are retiring uh, pretty rapid pace, and so um, that's been exacerbated in the last five years by a slowdown, big slowdown in immigration inflows, and we really are reliant on immigrant workers to to help meet the needs of our economy, uh, and also the pandemic. You know, tragically, many people have passed away. From COVID or other complications, um, and and other people have chosen to maybe retire or are sitting on the sidelines, and so we have a major labor supply crunch. Okay, so what the you know the the problem here is that with the labor market extremely tight, um, that's putting upper pressure on wages, and that wage pressure is feeding through into underlying inflation, and then you layer on top of it the more, well, let's not use the word transitory. But the more exogenous um, factors, like what happened in the in the in the in new and used car market, right? What's happening with semiconductors? What's happening with energy and food? Uh, but the core of the problem, I think, is a shortage of workers. Uh, we also have a shortage of housing units. Right? We've been underbuilding housing for since really 2006, when you know things peaked, and we needed a period of time where we were, you know, cutting back on new home construction clearly to absorb the overhang. But that's continued year after year, and so we've got a, we've got a housing shortage as well. Right, there's a lot of individuals that are concerned, obviously, with all this change, the new uh, economy, and the labor shortage, the supply chain shortage, and and they're they're looking for direction. As a professional forecaster. Where do you think things are headed? Uh, are there steps people can take now to prepare for the future? And if so, what would those steps be? Yeah. Um, look, I, I would 
refer back to a recent speech given at the Jackson Hole Symposium, uh, which was um, you know just here in late August, by Fed Chairman Jay Powell. There were other important papers, academic papers presented, and speeches given by you know ECB members and uh, Bank of International Settlements. There was a common theme, which is grappling with this reality, the new reality of what we would call binding supply side constraints or a less, you know, we, we transitioned from a period of supply side tailwinds, which helped keep inflation low, helped us keep, you know, the economy humming along uh, and low interest rates for quite a few years to now possibly more long lasting supply headwinds. Like we've, we've talked about a few of those. And so the game plan as I see it, and I think, I think this was essentially laid out by Chair Powell in his speech is that the Federal Reserve has to take, again, they have to take responsibility to bring inflation down. They can't allow it to persist at high levels for a sustained period of time because then it becomes really uh, self-reinforcing. People embed that inflationary psychology into the decisions they make. Uh, businesses do, households do, um, et cetera, and that makes it more persistent. And the Fed can't tolerate that. So what is the game plan as I, I think it, it, they're spelling out? The Federal Reserve is going to use their tools, uh, raising interest rates, shrinking their balance sheet, using their guidance about the future path of the economy, about the future path of monetary policy. Those tools are intended to what we say tighten financial conditions, which is economists speak for make the stock market go down, make bond prices go down as interest rates rise, make credit spreads widen. Uh, you know, uh, affect confidence, investor confidence, consumer confidence, uh, possibly bring, you know, real estate prices down, certainly rental inflation that Fed wants to cool off um, and, uh, you know, push the dollar up. These are all part of the financial conditions channel of monetary policy. What is that supposed to do, right? The Fed can't affect the hiring decisions, the kind of pricing decisions that people make, but they can try to tilt the playing field so that people feel incentivized or disincentivized to hire and spend and invest. And so what they're going to try to do by essentially punishing the markets is going to, you know, discourage people from spending, investing. Um, the Fed needs to loosen the labor market, as they say, which means push the unemployment rate up. Uh, and the, the only way you could do that is if you, you know, if you bring down aggregate demand so that businesses, employers, you know, governments, you know, reduce their demand for labor, let maybe lay off some of their marginal workers. So basically, I painted a picture where the Fed um, is going to use its tools to essentially push the economy into a recession. Uh, they don't, they're careful about you know, advertising that as the goal, but that has to be the solution. Um, a period of restrictive monetary policy, uh, tighter financial conditions, uh, you know, lower valuations for markets that will um, cool off this economy and hopefully bring inflation down. So that it doesn't turn into a you know 15-year battle like happened from the late 1960s until the early 1980s. So so that's kind of the game plan as I see it. I think it's going to take several years for this to play out. In terms of what people can do, look, I think it's a time to uh, number one, you know, get get your financial house in order. You know, make a plan. That might mean developing a budget. Um, uh, I, from an investment standpoint. I think it certainly means looking for opportunities to de-risk. Um, traditionally, you know, fixed income does well in an environment where we're heading into a recession. 
But again, we don't know how high the Fed is going to need to raise interest rates and um, and what that may do for bond returns. But I think um, now is the time to you know to rein in uh, a little bit of the optimism in terms of you know equity allocation, for example. Uh, and uh, it's it's an oppor- it, This is a time to seek to avoid losing money. And I do think there will be great opportunities uh, to invest at better valuations, um, but we have to see this pl- process play out first. Um, there was a you know question in the first half of the year because we saw GDP decline, that maybe you know we're already in a recession. Um, you know, there's a there's a phrase in Star Wars, you know, where they say, they say these are not the droids you're looking for. Um, they're trying to hide the droids, you know, from. Um, uh, in this example, this is not the recession you're looking for. Okay. We'll know it's a recession. We know the Fed is getting the job done when the unemployment rate is rising, right? And, and more recently, it's continued to fall. Um, so as that process plays out and as markets, you know, if, if markets correct um, uh, the way I'm, I'm describing, I do think there will be a great opportunity on the other side of this. Brian, one last question. Okay. And I'm going off the economy. I want to talk about passion projects you're working for with in your in your spare time. Are you willing to share that with us? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm one of those people, um, Alan, you may be the same where I I'm always I've always got a thought going on in my head. There's always a narrative, uh, something I'm thinking about, um, a project. And what I think what I spend a lot of time thinking about and working on on my spare time is you know trying to develop tools to help me make better investment decisions obviously my role at guggenheim that's a big part of what we do we're monitoring the economy and the markets day to day but we're also trying to develop kind of an infrastructure a set of tools that we can use to guide our investment teams i spend a lot of my own personal time thinking about how i can do better and be better in making my own investment decisions how how can i overcome my own cognitive biases that might lead me to you know make bad investment decisions, which, which all of us, you know, all of us face that. So what I, what I'm spending a lot of time thinking about is developing, you know, a model, several models to help, you know, make better decisions that, for example, how do you build, uh, the most, uh, an optimal equity portfolio? How do you select, you know, the different constituents of that portfolio? How do you weight them? Uh, how do you know when it's time to reduce your, you know, market exposure? Or to add market exposure, um, so those what we would call a systematic strategy uh, is stuff that I find very exciting. Um, I'm always looking for patterns for models that I can apply. Uh, that again, hopefully, in in a way, kind of to help us see the future, right? Just how a, just how a a, a, um, a meteorologist that's tracking a hurricane is going to use data and models and historical experience to try to predict the path and the implications of a major storm. Um, in a sense, that's what I, that's what I love doing and, and thinking about how I can be a better investor uh, is something that I'm very passionate about. Well, Brian, I appreciate you being with us today on American Dreams. Thanks, Alan. Great to be with you.